0: Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. The UK authorities are currently consulting on a new Cyber Governance Code of Practice. The draft code, which was published in January, covers five pillars – risk management, cyber strategy, people, incident planning and response and assurance and oversight. The aim, the government says, is to improve cyber resilience across the UK economy and ensure businesses and organisations have the tools and support to protect themselves against cyber threats. The code is being drawn up by a relatively new ministry, the Department of Science, Innovation and Technology, together with the National Centre for Cyber Security, as well as with input from industry. The code of practice is aimed at senior leaders, executives and non-executive directors rather than cyber specialists. And the goal is to have business leaders focus on cyber, putting it on a par with other risks such as financial or legal threats. Interestingly, the consultation focuses on resilience and emphasises the importance of incident response and recovery, as well as testing. But do businesses need more guidance and another code of practice? or will it just add to the regulatory burden? We asked Amanda Finch, CEO of the Chartered Institute of Information Security, to take a first look at the consultation documents and share her views.
1: You're right, there are so many codes of practice and standards and you know things out there that uh, yes, it can be confusing. Um, I think when it gets horrible is when they start contradicting each other. And if you look at the code of practice that DCIT um have put forward um it's pretty high level um so you can't really argue with it so i would say this is this is a pretty good uh code of practice and it's a it's a good start to build on as you said um these are relatively young as an organization they were part of the and um It's good that um, digital has has got its own um, identity now, basically, uh, rather than being part of a much larger organization and we've been working with dcit over the last uh, year well last year since they've been formed um and I, I think they're doing some good stuff you know they've certainly been very helpful to us they've given us um a great amount of support uh with the cyber epq um and that we're working with them on chartering people so i they're, they're, they've done quite a lot i think in the first year so good for them
0: and what they're putting forward isn't going to Revolutionise the world of cybersecurity, but I suppose that's not really the point, is
1: it? No, I, I think the thing is that it's it's a good baseline document. I mean, it's it is a lot of it is is what I always call mother and apple pie, is that it's sensible uh, things that you should be looking at. Um, You've got the five categories, risk, strategy, people, instant planning and, um, and handling and assurance. I mean, they're all things that organisations should be thinking about. Uh, and I think it's good that they've got a document here that actually clearly states some sort of fairly sensible but basic guidelines.
0: So just to set out the ground here, it's a draft code of practice. It's been developed together with the National Centre for Cybersecurity. So we'd expect a certain degree of of standardisation and quality from there. But it's aimed at, and I think this is what's quite interesting, it's aimed specifically at executive and non-executive directors and senior leaders in organisations. It's not aimed at cybersecurity professionals. It's not aimed at the vendor community, pen testers, or any of those other people. Is that an area, and I know we've talked about it before, but is that an area that still perhaps doesn't receive enough attention from policymakers Uh, Actually, the wider business community needs to understand these things.
1: Yeah, it has to be part of sort of the normal business function, basically. And I think that traditionally security um, and assurance has been seen as a bolt-on. It's been, it it was always a struggle to get it into the boardroom um, and to get it on a board agenda. I think we've got to that point where it is now, um, and in the same way as any other sort of good practice uh, should be incorporated into a business, um, that that's what we need to be doing for for, for cyber and infosec. Uh, so the fact that it is being aimed fairly and squarely at the C suite and the the NEDs and the um, and, and the, the the boards of companies, um, I think is is a good thing because it, they can't they can't ignore it. It's okay. It's you know. It's it's uh, it, it's not um, legislation at this stage, but it, it's absolutely laying out clearly good practice of what we think should be in place as security professionals.
0: Now, if I was going to pull out a particular part of this, it sets out that directors should have clear roles and responsibilities across organisations in cybersecurity. So that's absolutely essential, isn't it? So there's two things I want to focus in on, but let's do that one first. This idea of clear roles and responsibilities. And again, you know, I can't circle or underline this or or highlight it because this is a podcast, but clear would be the word I would want to emphasise there.
1: Yeah. No, I mean you, you need to have somebody that is accountable. And and um we're probably moving more to, towards the sort of idea of right to practice and um, that people have to be qualified in order to be responsible. Um and we're seeing that with chartering coming um in into place. So yes, somebody need, needs to be clearly accountable um for security. Um, basically. So I think it's good that you've got th- that somebody has to be named. I, d- I don't see how you can argue with that. Now that doesn't have to be an expert. Um, well, it depends where this goes. That um, uh, if somebody is liable at some point, then they will have to have uh, credentials that will back them up. But as you say, at the moment, it says somebody has to be an owner of the risk. If you look at the first one, which is um, defining the roles and responsibilities, um, that there has to be a relevant risk owner. But you have a relevant risk owner for finance, health and safety, you know, that it's, it's just a, a logical progression, surely.
0: I was going to say that it's analogous to the role of the CFO or the finance director in some respects, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And at the, at the end of the day, you wouldn't put um, me in as a CFO, or you'd be very unwise to anyway. Nor me. Um, so, you know, you need to have somebody who knows what they're doing.
0: They need to know what they're doing, but they also need to sit in an organisational structure. So it's absolutely clear who the go-to person is if there is an incident. I think that's quite important, isn't it? And something that has doesn't always get done.
1: No, and I think the other thing is that the person needs to be empowered to be able to do it as well, because it's a bit like telling the CFO that you've got, I don't know, 50 quid uh, to um, cover all of the operational costs. You know, the... Um that the CFO wouldn't stand for that. They, they'd expect to have all, all that they had to account for all of the company's um, uh, finances, but they they didn't have a, a proper finance accounting system in place that they had to do it on uh, three spreadsheets and two notebooks. You know it's it, it, it's the same thing, isn't it that the, per, the, the person that is in charge and that is accountable has to have the tools and able to be able to do the job.
0: So the second part that I wanted to pull out links very closely to that, and that is, and I'm quoting from the press release here, but to have detailed plans in place to respond to and recover from potential security incidents. So they're not talking about perimeter security, endpoint protection, and all those things per se, but what they're looking at is that resilience thing. And again, we have talked about this over the past year quite a lot, and it's become much more of a feature of incident planning and the way that organisations look at cybersecurity. And, you know, we've both been in this industry for longer than we're probably going to count. But we have got to that point now, perhaps, where people are saying, no, it's actually about your resilience and ability to respond rather than your ability to prevent. Would you say that this is the right tone for them to be taking that? Actually, it's all about that response and recovery.
1: Uh, absolutely. I mean, that if you Look at um well, we can go to our um, our report, our annual survey, it looks at incidents that have been handled well and incidents that have been handled badly. Um, and I think that preparation aspect is incredibly important. That um, um if if you're not thinking about the sort of incidents that can happen and um working out how you would recover from them if they did occur or when they occur, all to the point. <laughs> Um, you're going to be on the back foot um, when it happens, and 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 you see that with a lot of the breaches that have happened. The ones that people remember are usually the ones where they've been communicated badly, um, that they've they've tried to cover things up, you know, that um, and the, and they've basically not dealt with the incident well. Um, where I think where the incident has been dealt with well, um, organisations have come out less scathed, obviously, um, either, either just externally from people, um, sort of saying, "Gosh, you know, they've made a real mess of this." But also, actually, the organisation has been stronger because they've they've said we've had an incident, we've dealt with it. It's had minimal impact on the organisation. And if you don't practice having uh, or rehearse how you're going to deal with an incident, um, you're gonna, you're not going to be in great shape when something
0: happens. Do we have any more details at this point of what will actually be in the cyber government's code of practice when it comes out?
1: Um, I don't personally, um, but it's a question that I shall be asking next time I'm I'm, uh, in Parliament Square, basically.
0: It would be interesting to see whether there are underlying requirements in terms of, for example, accreditation or compliance with any external standards, ISO, for example, uh, whatever. you know. Again, we come back to the point that there's actually an awful lot of these out there already. So to some extent, it's... Um, and we, know, we don't know what they're going to say at this point, because they probably haven't decided themselves, as it says it is a consultation. But you can either be quite prescriptive and say, you must follow this, or you can be more open and say, you must adhere to a recognised standard relevant to your industry, relevant to your sector. Which way would you lean if you were if you were on this group, putting this together?
1: Well, I think the thing is that you've got to look at the whole landscape and some industries um, are more regulated than others. So really what you'd want to have at a high level is an umbrella type Um, approach so that other industries can say, right, okay, that's great. We align with the overarching principles for this, but because we're the nuclear sector or because we're the finance sector, we actually need more regulation and guidance in particular areas. So I think that something that um, DCIT are, are producing should be high level so that people can actually embrace it sort of totally, I suppose, but they can then um, build in um, the, the necessary resilience that they need for their particular sector. The other thing that you've got is that we're not the only country that will be doing this. Um, so again, um, if you're looking at global organizations and people that are working in different um, legal jurisdictions, etc., cetera, um, you've got to have things that sort of complement each other. So at this level, I think that it has to be a high level um, overarching um, code of practice that you can then build on, depending on where you are.
0: Yeah. So if you have a an industry set of regulations that goes beyond the minimum, then adhere to those. But you don't need to duplicate and have two sets of reporting, for example, to say, well, actually, I'm compliant with this regulation for my industry, but I'm also having to go through a whole other process to be accredited against this standard the government's pushing forward.
1: Exactly. I mean that that just doesn't make sense to have, um, you know, sort of multiple um, ways of of accounting in many ways. And I think that also the the, the one thing you don't want is where things contradict each other. That um, Uh, We've seen that previously with legislation where you sort of think, well, if I comply with this piece of legislation, I'm breaking another piece of legislation. So which one am I going to go to prison for and which one do I have to pay a a small fine for? Um, And I'll I'll not stick with the one that uh, I just have to pay a small fine for. Um, I'll I'll stick to the one that uh, is going to send me to jail. Well,
0: that's a wider problem with compliance anyway, isn't it? Because we're seeing... yeah. You know, going back to the point about vertical markets and industries, we're seeing organisations quite legitimately put together specific rules. So, for example, we have DORA coming up in the EU, Digital Operations Resilience Act, but that covers some specific cases. There are others in the pipeline as well, and in the United States and other, other territories. And the difficulty is that organizations then have to deal with a matrix of, as you say, potentially contradictory, but certainly not always complementary requirements. And they have to assess their ability to comply. And none of this compliance stuff inherently actually makes them any safer. It's simply a process they have to say, well, we've got this and does what we have here and what we do comply with that. So we don't get a penalty for non-compliance. And for policymakers, and, and I have some sympathy for people such as when they're trying to put these things together, you don't want to introduce new layers of bureaucracy and form-filling and box-checking if that actually doesn't improve security. But how do you establish what does?
1: Well, I think it all goes back to the the risk assessment. I mean, that's really where organisations need to be focusing their attention and um, that's in their... um, their, um, good practice, code of practice, is to look at risk. Um, so, every organization is going to be different, aren't they? So, if you don't understand your own risk profile and what is going to really cause a problem um, if if you don't um, try and do your best to mitigate against it, um, it doesn't matter how many forms you fill out. Um, you may quite easily be able to fill out all of the tick boxes. Um, But if you're not understanding the risk and what the impact will be on your organisation, that's when you're going to get burnt.
0: Also, at the other end of the spectrum, they do drop right down in the announcement to talking about cyber essentials. So at the one hand, you've got something that's aimed at board directors, non-executives and the like. And at the other hand, you've got cyber essentials, which is certainly promoted as quite a small business type thing. I, I appreciate that anyone can use it. Do you see those two things as working together, or how do you see those two things working together? Because, again, they highlight some perfectly sensible things from Cyber Essentials, saying that you know if you do these things, you're much less likely to be breached successfully, and a lot of that comes down to very much doing the basics. So, again, I, I quote from the document, but talking about having suitable antivirus software and removing default passwords, then... A part of attaining a cyber cyber essential certificate that isn't a top level approach to risk.
1: No, uh, I mean that's just that's cyber hygiene, um, basically. But it does come into risk though, because if you're looking at, um, I don't know, say, if the business is not able to trade. Um, because um, it's been taken out by um, a ransomware attack or, or something similar, um, then that's that's going to hit them. And, and probably one of the things that will prevent them being hit is having up-to-date um, malware protection in place. So I think it, it's all part of the jigsaw, isn't it?
0: It is, and I think that's it, what makes it complicated oh, to navigate and- sometimes as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and I think the other thing is that Cyber Essentials is aimed at small businesses, and small businesses are probably the least well-equipped to actually deal with cyber um, breaches because um, they won't have dedicated resource necessarily. Um, they won't necessarily have the understanding. They're probably trying to concentrate on 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 keeping the business going, um, and that. They're probably in many ways the most vulnerable. Well, we know they're the most vulnerable. You know, it's it's been the, the problem we've been trying to fix for years, isn't it? The supply chain. So, yeah, it's it, it's difficult because it has to be a top-down and a bottom-up approach. Um, but the trouble is that it's, it's time-consuming. And for a small business, that's tough. It is, and it's a resource
0: question as well because, again... This has to be resourced, and if you don't resource it, you're not going to do those things. Now, whether those things are patching, enforcing, password resets, 2FA, there's a laundry list of things that you can do to comply with Cyber Essentials or any other standard, purportive standard that's out there. Um, The difficulty, and we come back to the top level and how they set it out about talking to boards, is... Persuading people to invest, and again, we talked about this in our end of 2023 roundup that we did a couple of months ago, but moving the security side to the left of the planning phase, whether that's software development in the narrow sense or the overall plans that you have for the business you have to put that security in place early on putting it in later becomes much more expensive much less likely to work we, we know all this stuff but again coming back to that point of you well, don't do it just don't do it but it has to be resourced and I think that's the the thing that becomes quite interesting or quite difficult for organizations is to say we've got somebody at the one hand who's saying this is simply a cost and I need to control that cost and reduce that cost to as low as is reasonably possible and at the other hand you've got large Growing and possibly unquantifiable risks and liabilities in the event of a cyber attack, and I see those as very difficult to reconcile. If you try to put yourself in the in the shoes of someone on a board who is not a cyber specialist,
1: well, I think I think it's difficult, as you say, for somebody who's not a cyber specialist. And it's a bit like um, I don't know, you you know, you paint the house or, or whatever. You, you you feel that you've made the outlay, um, but you need to keep maintaining. Um, you know, the the, uh, house painting or whatever it is to to make sure that, you know, you don't end up with rotten wood uh, and things like that. And I think what tends to happen is that um, boards probably look at the expenditure and say, well, I've invested yay many um, hundreds of thousands of pounds or whatever in a project. Um, I've ticked that box. What they don't realize is that it's like an MOT on a car, you know, that a pen test or an assessment is just a point in time and things can change and then you know suddenly a car's not roadworthy six months ahead because um we haven't been checking that the tires haven't got a nail in them or uh all the exhausters got damaged going over a pop coal or do, do, do you know what I mean it's is that I think people I think that the, the boards tend to sort of feel that we've 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 done that we've ticked the box we've made the investment um we've done this for this year we need to move on. Um, and they don't see that it's just a continuous cycle, and it's an expensive continuous cycle um, in many ways. But I think the other problem is that people don't necessarily think out of the box about um, how they can deal with the problem, because obviously the technical investments are going to be very expensive, but we we have it every year in our survey about people being you know, the biggest thing that we need to think about in security. And you know that's obviously making sure that people that are using systems are empowered and understand what they're doing, and they understand the threats that we have. People that are competent um, making um, decisions about how the, the, the systems are protected, um, and that in many ways you can do an awful lot without using technical solutions. You know, a lot can be done through communications. A lot can be done through assessing the risks and thinking about things, a lot can be done with the planning. Um, so people understand what to do if there's an incident, as it says in this code of practice. You should you should practice, literally.
0: Are you seeing a convergence of business resilience and cybersecurity now?
1: I think so. Is, is the answer um, is that um, I think that, that that you have you have to see it holistically and I think that as a profession we are probably coming together more uh,
0: that's one of the things that's changed with ransomware as well though it's very much highlighted the fact that you can't constantly beat the attacker and therefore you need some ability to recover and they have been in IT speak quite separate disciplines, business continuities, a lot to do with premises and power cuts and fires and floods and all those things. And cybersecurity has been its own little you know, information and data security department somewhere hidden away that didn't really talk to the rest of the business. But again, it's a change that I've witnessed in the last couple of years where that question about resilience and recovery is now linking into the wider business risk perspective and business resilience. Is that something that you would like to see in either this or other codes of practice, that actually those two aspects and potentially even the physical and virtual or cyber security are much more closely linked together?
1: I think they have to be. And uh, if you look at, uh, well, if you go back a thousand years when I started doing this stuff, um, is that, you know, it was, if you look at physical security, um, it was more about locks on doors and, 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 as it says in the title physical security, but it's not like that anymore. Everything is is um, is, is linked, everything's electronic, you know it's got an electronic aspect to it. Um, it has to be joined up um, and, and taking it beyond that side, if you look at things like privacy, um, privacy used to be a very separate discipline from um, from from Infosec, but those two worlds are getting aligned as well. So I think it's important. I think it's important that we do all work collaboratively, and in the same way as we um, at Cysec, we look at all of the different skills that make up the security profession. Um, is that you've got people that are specialising in particular aspects of it. It might be the physical side. It might be the um, the, 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 uh, the GDPR side of it. It might be. Um, you know the secure operation. I mean, secure operations, and IT. They they, 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 all of these disciplines overlap with other disciplines and specialisms. Um, and it's important that we all work collaboratively and talk to each other and uh, and align things. It's obviously the most efficient way of doing things.
0: And that does again bring us back to the resourcing issue because highly skilled and potentially quite expensive staff needed to deploy specific solutions versus a wider approach of security awareness and education, which a lot of organisations could probably do within existing resources. Not always, but we don't necessarily need to spend a lot of money on doing that. And there is some very good supporting material available from NCSC and others free of charge.
1: Yes. And I think that's the thing of of, um, of identifying uh, these resources, because... Uh, Again, as you say, there's so much stuff out there is that uh, we probably need to help roadmap, particularly the smaller organisations, on how to access this. And um, I'm at the moment on an advisory board um, with um, a a group of universities, including um, Nottingham and and, uh, Derby, I think it is, um, university, where they're looking at helping small organisations um, with understanding, um, you know how to protect themselves against risks, risks and deal deal with um, issues. And again, it's it's where do they find this information? And um, and and they struggle. They do struggle with it.
0: Overall, though, you're fairly positive about this
1: about this uh, code of practice. Yeah, I think it's a, a good thing. I think it's a good thing. Um, I I think that uh, Dit are trying to do some very good things. I think it's great that they've got their own identity now. Um, and um, um, that uh, it's it, it's it's the start of, you know many things that they're doing.
0: And as I said, it is a consultation at the moment, so they are looking for views. So if anybody does want to contact them, I suggest that either use a search engine because the uh, the URL is actually quite long, uh, or you can email them directly, and the email address for that is cybergovernance.dcit.gov.uk and the deadline for responding to the consultation or the draft code uh, is Tuesday, the nineteenth of March at uh, eleven fifty-nine PM. It says on their website, very specific. But I would suggest that if any if any listeners have views, search for the government's call for input and um, provide evidence, because again, some of the points that we've raised here in this uh, in this episode are probably ones that people are going to feed back in respect of how it's organised, the way that the different standards cross-cut and how organisations can resource it and find information.
1: I'd really like to encourage people to um, contribute because um, this is the only way that we're going to drive change um, and and get what we want. It's it's our profession uh, and it's important that we feed our views in. So... um, We will be, as an institute, feeding back into them um, and we will be looking for, for opportunities to actually feed in to help influence going forward. So please have your say.
0: Amanda Finch on DCIT's proposed code of practice and how it could help focus business leaders' minds on cyber threats. After all, those threats are not going away. As we said, the consultation is open until March the 19th and we'll put links in the episode description but the easiest way to find it is to go to gov.uk and search for the Cyber Governance Code of Practice. Do take the time to share your views. That though is all for this episode of Security Insights. We'll be back in two weeks' time and we'll look at another upcoming regulatory change when we revisit the EU's Digital Operations Resilience Act, better known as DORA. Until then, do catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, or subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.